Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're listening to audio long reads from The New Statesman, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. In this episode, The Psychiatrists Who Don't Believe in Mental Illness, written and read by Sophie McBain. It was first published on The New Statesman website and magazine on the 9th of February 2022. One afternoon in December 2004, Samantha left her house in northern England and walked to the nearby river. She tried not to think about her five young children, alone at home. She wanted to plunge into the water. She didn't know how to swim. Alarmed by her mother's absence, Samantha's 11-year-old daughter dialed 999 and the police found her on the riverbank. She was transferred to a psychiatric hospital where she spent four days curled up in a ball, crying. She was already known to social services. Samantha had a violent ex-boyfriend and had been abused as a child before being taken into care at the age of 12. It was difficult to know how to be a good mother when she had never been mothered herself. Shortly afterwards, a psychiatrist, asked by the local authority to assess her, diagnosed Samantha with Borderline Personality Disorder, BPD. Last year, Samantha read the report to me over Zoom. By then, we'd been speaking for three months. She was warm and solicitous. But anyway, how are you? She always asked. But now her voice was hard with rage. The report noted her lack of a sense of personal responsibility and poor impulse control. It accused her of feigning a mental disorder while in hospital. But that's not me, that's not who I am, she remembers telling her solicitor, terrified. A social worker told her she needed to achieve greater emotional stability. If you could just close your eyes for a second and imagine someone taking your child away, Samantha asked me, how would you feel? But the psychiatrist deemed her disorder untreatable and her children were removed. During the family court proceedings, Samantha's solicitor suggested she read the Philip Larkin poem, This Be the Verse, They Fuck You Up, Your Mum and Dad. After that, she read They F You Up, How to Survive Family Life by the psychologist Oliver James. Soon she was reading every psychology and self-help book she could find. As we spoke, one of her arms frequently disappeared into her Zoom background of pink hibiscus flowers and re-emerged with another book. Deemed ineligible for NHS therapy, she started paying for help privately. 
In 2015, 10 years after her children were taken from her, a psychologist gave her a new diagnosis, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It confirmed what Samantha was coming to realise herself. There was nothing wrong with her personality. Her problems could all be linked to what had happened to her. While it was a relief, I was really angry, she told me, because that label, BPD, was used to hurt me and my children. It destroyed our lives. By then, she was back in touch with four of her children, who had often run away from their foster homes to be with her. She campaigned on mental health and was running a peer support group. She'd also joined Twitter, where she is an opinionated presence, and got into a conversation well, an argument at first, with a psychologist who upended her worldview again. What if Samantha's diagnosis of complex PTSD wasn't quite right either? She'd been suicidal, yes, but who in her position wouldn't have felt desperate? Had she ever been mentally ill? Samantha had just stepped into one of the fiercest rows in British psychiatry. In recent months, there has been extensive coverage of an unfolding mental health crisis. Government figures suggest that, since the start of the pandemic, the number of adults with depression has doubled to one in five. Referrals for children have also doubled. 200,000 under-18s were referred to NHS mental health services in April to June 2021. Has COVID sparked a parallel wave of mental illness, Or is such widespread suffering a natural response to the months of isolation, uncertainty and daily death counts? The debate in psychiatry is in part an argument over how we address this shadow pandemic. Some argue that what looks like a health emergency is better understood as mass unhappiness. The psychologist Samantha met on Twitter was Lucy Johnstone. She is part of a close-knit group of British psychiatrists, psychologists and patients who reject the idea of mental illness. They argue that diagnoses are scientifically invalid and harmful because they pathologise understandable reactions and falsely imply that there are medical solutions. Mental illness is not a valid concept, Johnstone told me. Instead, we should be talking about mental distress. She argues that the medicalised language of disorders and symptoms creates a false distance between a person's feelings and the cause of their distress, whether it's trauma, abuse, poverty, or even unrealistic cultural expectations. Johnstone, who is in her 50s, with a clipped, no-nonsense manner, is frequently infuriated by the way we talk about mental health. The phrase itself can elicit a groan. She prefers feelings. After we first spoke on Zoom, she sent me a link to an article reporting the rise in mental illness among those who had lost income during the pandemic. The government responded by affirming plans to invest in mental health care. Johnstone's view is that it should tackle the root problem, poverty, not illness. She would emphasise that people in distress deserve support, but that mental illnesses do not exist in the same way physical ones do. If you tell someone, as an established fact, you have bipolar disorder, you have schizophrenia, you have a personality disorder. Really, you're telling them something untrue. And that has consequences for people's identity, life insurance, relationships. It's a major crisis of our time in some ways. 
Johnston grew up in Lincolnshire and describes herself as a classic example of someone from a stable, middle-class family who was nonetheless deeply unhappy as a child. She started reading psychology books at 12 and studied the subject at Oxford University in the 1980s. There, she was inspired by the work of anti-psychiatrists such as R.D. Lang, the 1960s countercultural icon who described insanity as a rational reaction to an insane world. Throughout her career in adult mental health, Johnstone has frequently clashed with colleagues and peers. On Twitter, these debates now rage in public view. The UK is in many ways an international pioneer in mental health. It has an active survivor community, a network of current and former patients, a history of radical thinking, and a healthcare system that is receptive to non-medical approaches. It has also become engaged in a bitter culture war between those who want to abandon psychiatry's disease model, the critical psychiatrists and psychologists, and those who do not. Social media has given patients a louder voice, enabling them to communicate directly with professionals. It has also fueled vicious polarisation. Prominent figures accuse one another of endangering patients, engaging in pseudoscience and bullying and cybermobbing their critics. Several interviewees advised me against writing this piece. The subject was too controversial, they said. Nothing good could come from kicking this hornet's nest. The debate is fierce because there is much at stake. It concerns not only professionals arguing over the validity of their careers, but people trying to make sense of the darkest chapters of their lives. There are those who argue that psychiatry has coerced them into mind-altering, life-shortening treatments and imposed stigmatising labels. And there are those who say it saved them. Psychiatry's model for classifying disease owes much to Emil Kraepelin, 1856-1926. A contemporary of Sigmund Freud, he aimed to create a taxonomy of mental illness in the same way that his brother, a naturalist, could classify animals and plants. Kraepelin believed that all mental illness was genetic or physiological in origin, and his Compendium of Psychiatry, 1883, became the discipline's foundational text. Problems such as heartbreak or overwork were not the reason people became mentally ill. They were only symptoms. We have since made disappointing progress in uncovering the neurobiological basis for many mental illnesses. We have found explanations for degenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, but no medical test can confirm a condition such as depression or schizophrenia. Instead, psychiatrists often go on what their patients tell them. Or what they observe. They make diagnoses with reference to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, now in its fifth edition, DSM-5, or a similar textbook compiled by the World Health Organization, which both group disorders according to clusters of symptoms. The books are deliberately neutral on the causes of disorders. When we use the word diagnosis, people imagine you're identifying a cause the psychiatrist Sammy Tamimi told me. Tamimi is a member of the Critical Psychiatry Network, which was founded in Bradford in 1999 and now has a membership of around 350 psychiatrists, most of whom are in the UK. Identifying a cause isn't always the focus in general medicine. 
Take, for example, a condition such as migraine, but it's often the goal. It's why you might find relief on presenting with chest pain to know that you are suffering from acid reflux rather than a heart attack. But in psychiatry, diagnosis is just a descriptive term, and it's a poor descriptive term, so I don't think we can make any progress until we get rid of the phrase diagnosis, Tamimi said. During his training, Tamimi looked at the way Western doctors have exported their psychiatric models overseas. A British Iraqi, he noted how the field was often shaped by racist and eugenicist beliefs. Multiple studies have shown that in developing countries where psychiatric care is limited, patients who are diagnosed with schizophrenia are more likely to make a full recovery than those in the West. Researchers speculate this may be due to cultural differences. People in countries such as the UK tend to view psychosis as a disturbing, potentially lifelong illness. When Tamimi came to specialise, he chose child psychiatry, because in the 1990s it was unusual to prescribe medication or give diagnostic labels to under-18s. He then watched, in horror, as child psychiatry became more medicalised too. When people say mental illnesses are just like physical ones, they often mean well. They want to say that mental suffering should not be minimised. But consider the similarities between depression and high blood pressure. Both can be caused by stress and disproportionately affect those living in poverty. The exact point at which healthy blood pressure becomes unhealthy is somewhat arbitrary, just as there is no scientific point at which persistent sadness becomes depression. The difference is that a machine can diagnose the former, while most psychiatric diagnoses require a subjective judgement. If someone meets all the criteria for depression but has lost a child, are they better understood as simply grieving? In 2013, the DSM-5 removed the bereavement exclusion so that doctors could diagnose depression for those in mourning. That psychiatrists frequently disagree is evidence for such subjectivity. The patients I spoke to who are most opposed to diagnosis had been given multiple labels and could recite them like a shopping list. Bipolar, schizophrenia, treatment-resistant schizophrenia, psychosis, psychotic depression, said one woman. Then suddenly it changed to borderline personality disorder. The diagnoses felt meaningless to her. They kept changing, but she was the same. The most complicated factor to consider is what it feels like to be told you have a mental disorder. As Tamimi puts it, the object of study, which is the mind, is not the same as the object of study when it's a kidney. The kidney doesn't worry about the future. The kidney isn't going to abandon me if I read out a set of kidney results. He observed that the language psychiatrists use can have a huge impact on a person's self-perception. There's a big difference, for instance, between being told that you are ambitious and being told you are suffering from delusions of grandeur. Psychiatry's disease model has never been uncontested, but the influence of critical movements has fluctuated. The anti-psychiatrists in the 1960s and 70s developed their ideas in opposition to the oppressive nature of psychiatry then, with its terrible asylums. From the 1980s, more biological approaches became resurgent. A new generation of antidepressants such as Prozac raised hopes of a chemical cure, the US Congress declared the 1990s the decade of the brain 
investing billions in research aimed at solving mental ill health. Today's critics point to the failure of this research and to the way successive editions of the DSM keep widening the scope of diagnosis. The argument against mental illness is also an argument against psychiatry's mission creep. Once only the most desperate were seen as mentally ill, but if, as the charity Mind reports, one in four Britons experience a mental health problem in any one year, are we now mischaracterising the challenges of living? When the most recent edition of the DSM was published in 2013, it was met with a strong backlash, especially in the UK. The British Psychological Society, BPS, which has 50,000 members, condemned diagnosis altogether. Lucy Johnstone co-wrote a BPS position statement with 10 others, demanding a paradigm shift towards a conceptual system that is no longer based on a disease model. One of the most high-profile critics of the DSM was Alan Francis, the American psychiatrist who oversaw the development of the dsm 4 In 2013, Francis published a book called Saving Normal, which argued that for decades the DSM and Big Pharma had driven rampant diagnostic inflation. He wrote that he had tried to be conservative when working on the dsm 4 but that it nonetheless triggered epidemics of certain illnesses. ADHD diagnoses tripled in its wake, autism diagnoses increased 20-fold, and among children, bipolar disorder diagnoses increased 40-fold. Nonetheless, Francis has little time for critical psychologists, dismissing their statements as pie-in-the-sky stuff with no real-world foundation. When we spoke on the phone, he said the DSM's flaws are not reason enough to abandon diagnosis. Psychiatrists need these criteria to help determine if a patient's problems are the result of a physical illness, he said, or a reaction to illegal or prescription drugs, and to guide treatment. But he will admit that the manual is a crude tool. I don't trust people who worship the DSM as a Bible. That's a reductionist way of looking at things. As Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago, it's more important to know the patient who has the disease than the disease the patient has. In Francis's view, critical psychiatry would be better thought of as a complementary rather than a contradictory position. Conceptually, it doesn't take a genius to say we should have a model that stands on four legs, biological, psychological, social and spiritual. What would it look like if we abandoned the idea of mental illness? In 2018, Lucy Johnstone and the psychologist Mary Boyle published a model they said could provide an alternative to diagnosis, the Power Threat Meaning Framework, or PTMF. Developed with former patients, it is based on interrelated questions such as how is power operating in your life? What kind of threats does this pose? Instead of symptoms, the framework invites people to think of threat responses Instead of disorders, there are general patterns of behaviour. For the text version of this article and all our long reads, subscribe to The New Statesman for just £1 a week for 12 weeks using our special podcast offer. Just visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer.
Hello, I'm Anoush, Britain editor of The New Statesman. I host The New Statesman podcast, bringing you the latest in UK politics. Twice a week, the politics team takes you behind the scenes to find out what's really going on in Westminster and beyond. We'll help you better understand a world that's constantly changing with special guests and regular contributions from writers including our political editor Andrew Marr, polling expert Ben Walker and Scotland editor Chris Deering. Get better informed with the New Statesman podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Same Huda, a Scottish consultant psychiatrist, told me it was fantastic that some people found the PTMF helpful, but he didn't think it was a substitute for diagnosis. It's not ready for prime time, he said, pointing to a lack of evidence and data. We don't have enough evidence yet for what problems it can help with, how helpful it will be, and that it can give us information on outcomes. The PTMF does not preclude medication, but it does suggest a different attitude to drugs. In this, Johnstone is influenced by the British psychiatrist Joanna Moncrieff, who is fiercely critical of the way psychopharmaceuticals have been researched and sold. She believes we should think of them not as treatments, but as blunter substances that may have useful effects, such as improving sleep, alongside harmful ones. In this sense, they are closer to a drug like alcohol. A few drinks might ease your social anxiety but at a cost. Medication remains a contentious area. 
The American psychologist Nev Jones has noted that within activist communities, pill shaming is not uncommon. Jones, who is based at the University of Pittsburgh, suffered psychosis over a decade ago when she was in her late 20s and studying for a PhD in philosophy and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. It took years to recover, but when she did, Jones decided to devote her career to studying psychosis. Mental health professionals seemed not to grasp its diversity and strangeness, she thought, and assumed the same treatment would work for everyone. When we spoke over Zoom, I asked Jones what had aided her recovery. She didn't hesitate. Empowerment. The worst part of falling ill had been becoming a psychiatric patient. The problem wasn't, you've got schizophrenia or you've got psychosis. The deep thing was losing all meaning in my life, all social value. And the healing thing was being able to enter into conversations as an equal. It wasn't Jones's first experience of schizophrenia. A relative had been diagnosed with it too, and for much of her life has been unable to communicate. It angered Jones that those critical of diagnosis and medication didn't consider the most intractable cases. You have to acknowledge that there's a biological component here. These patients are not self-manufacturing the extreme disorganisation and association clanging that psychiatrists would describe as the hallmarks of really severe thought disorder. Many psychiatrists would agree that it's wrong to conclude that biology is never the underlying cause of mental illness. But perhaps what causes most harm is when a professional imposes their worldview on a patient. Some activists told me that they felt that critical psychiatry overlooked and even patronised people who found a diagnosis and medical treatment helpful. Some feared the academic debates ignored the bigger issues faced by those in crisis, discrimination, poverty, the struggle to access any kind of care. Already, some psychiatrists say they will ask their patients if they find a diagnosis helpful and follow their lead. What looks like a science question, an investigation into the nature of illness, might ultimately be more about power. Brett Lee, a young car mechanic from Whitstable, suffered a mental breakdown six years ago. His behaviour became so erratic that his parents and sister worried that he would be sectioned. A mental health crisis team was called to their home several times, but the arrival of strangers asking odd questions, scribbling in their notebooks, trying to get him to take pills, only fuelled Lee's paranoia. After a few weeks, he was hospitalised in Canterbury. The Hospital Trust was participating in an NHS-supported pilot of open dialogue, an approach pioneered in Finland in the 1980s. This is compatible with diagnosis and medication, but can also use neither. The principles are simple. The person in crisis, those close to them, and a small group of support staff work together to address the problem. Staff do not discuss patients in their absence, and at meetings every perspective is given equal weight. Research in Finland has suggested that people supported in this way spend significantly less time in hospital require less medication and are less likely to relapse. At Canterbury, Lee met Yasmin Ishak, the hospital's open dialogue lead. Ishak has worked as a psychotherapist and social worker for 26 years and no longer uses the word illness in relation to the mind. 
She prefers distress. She said she was influenced by people like Johnstone and by her own experience of caring for her brother, who suffers from serious mental health problems. It infuriated Ishak that, when he was hospitalised recently, the staff did not listen to her until she told them she was a psychotherapist. Ishak felt that being his sister was expertise enough. Ishak invited Lee to join a meeting with his family, a doctor and social worker. Together they explored questions such as whether Lee should take medication. He'd been reluctant, but his family saw that the pills were helping him sleep and when he slept, something of the old Brett returned. They persuaded him to continue. They did not seek a diagnosis and avoided words like psychosis or paranoia. Lee talked instead about the anxiety he'd worked so hard to conceal, which had been driving his workaholism. When he left hospital after 10 days, the meetings continued, weekly at first and then less frequently as Lee reduced his medication and, over the next two years, returned to work. There were bad days, but he felt stronger than before. It helped to know that he'd been the architect of his own recovery. Soon after the Power Threat Meaning Framework was published, Samantha decided to apply it to her own life. It was the first time she'd been prompted to tell her own story. She wrote about the abuse she had suffered and how she had formed a subservient relationship with a controlling psychiatric system in order to access support. One of the PTMF questions was, what are your strengths? No one had asked her that. She wrote of her intelligence and resilience and her beautiful family. When we spoke, Samantha's grandson was often with her. He was born in 2010 and she remembers her daughter handing him to her when he was just three days old. Because my children had been taken away, I was terrified of attaching to anyone or anything. But he just looked at me and gave this little yap and that was it. He taught her how to love. Samantha no longer believes in diagnosis and rejects the idea that she has complex PTSD. Trauma had affected her deeply, she acknowledged, but so had her experiences of inequality. Even well-intentioned campaigns such as Mental Health Awareness Week irritate her. Could we not talk instead about how diagnoses can harm people, she asked me, by erecting barriers between the sick and the well? Clinically vulnerable, Samantha rarely left home in the first 18 months of the pandemic, and when she did, often felt anxious. She still speaks to her therapist often, but they use a different language now. I don't have symptoms, she told me. I am a normal person who is responding and reacting in an understandable way. It makes me feel human again. Some names have been changed. The Psychiatrists Who Don't Believe in Mental Illness, written and read by me, Sophie McBain. This has been Long Reads from the New Statesman. This episode was produced by May Robson and Adrian Bradley. The commissioning editor was Melissa Deans, and the executive producer was Chris Stone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe and rate the show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.